There's a camp not far from here, just across the lake. Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, what's going on? It's Nick Vance. Paranoid Futures on all the social media platforms. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all the major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon, not only to get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as the Cinemadness movie possible. All right, Jim, what are we getting into today? Well, it's summertime. It's time to put on a little sunscreen on your nose. Get that mosquito repellent. Because we're heading back to camp. Camp Void, that is. So, for those you don't know or not familiar with what Camp Void is, it's a kind of little sub-series I do within Cinematic Void programming-wise. It actually started the first year of Cinematic Void back in 2016. It was kind of put together... the while the Egyptian was being renovated at the time, we couldn't really use the big room, the show 35. So we did a bunch of we did a bunch of the shows in the Spielberg, which is the little house of the Egyptian, as well as a couple shows of the Arrow. And we did one a week from the end of June all the way through August, which seemed like a good idea at the time until it was just like, Jesus Christ, fucking make it stop. Yeah, you know, myself and Grant Moniker, one of the programmers in American Cinematheque, we dressed up as camp counselors. And again, sounded fun, but then about halfway through realized, like, make it stop. But we showed, you know, we showed a lot of good, interesting films. We did, like, obvious hits, you know, like the Friday 13th, Sleepaway Camp, The Burning. We did some kind of deep cuts, like Twisted Nightmare and um, Summer Camp Nightmare. We also showed some just weirdo shit. We did Demonoid and the Bees with um, Alfredo Zachariah, the director of both those films. It was the first Q&A he's ever done publicly. We did Raw Force on the same night. It was Tiki Night. We also did the um, Severn Films 10th anniversary in the middle of it. And we also had Umberto come out and do a live set before we screened Burial Ground. Oh, I'm forgetting. And we kicked everything off with an animal attack double feature of Day of the Animals and Wild Beasts. So it was a fun time, but I kind of stayed away from it for a few years until 2019 where I brought Camp Void back as a kind of ridiculous marathon with Friday the 13th Part 4, the final chapter, Meatballs 2, Humanoids from the Deep, Private Resort, Tourist Trap, and The Hills Have Eyes. And I was going to bring it back in 2020 to the theater, but we all know what happened at this point. Let's, let's just move on from that. We don't need to say it anymore. But in the meantime, I ended up doing Camp Void virtually last year, and this year I'm going to do the same because while things are reopening, Cinematic Void is not going to have its first show in probably late July or August at this point. And I wanted to do Camp Void, but I also don't want to reopen with Camp Void, if that makes sense. So this year, Camp Void be virtual again. Next year, be back in the theater. So stoked for that. 
And before we get into it, what we're going to talk about today is four of the films that screened in the first year of Camp Void, three of which were part of a triple feature, and one we got to talk about because it's kind of the quintessential, like, summer camp slasher. It's kind of unavoidable. You know, if we don't talk about it, people are like, what the fuck? But, you know, we'll cover it. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we're going to get into Camp Void here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Hi, now's the time to plan a great summer of fun for your child at Young People's Day Camp. Let me show you how Young People's Day Camp makes fun happen. At Young People's Day Camp, your child is picked up and brought home by Camp Bus. In between, the days are filled with fun activities. There's boat rides, all summer sports, long swims in the pool, arts and crafts, weekly field trips, and so much more. All under the care, supervision, and instruction of state licensed teachers and administrators. There are two to eight week programs available. And for the 16th anniversary year, tuition is just 110 a week for an eight week program. Camp shirts, tote bags, trophies, awards, and banners are all provided free. Act now to reserve a place for your child. For the camp nearest you, call on the five boroughs, 718-447-8010, New Jersey, 521-3600, Long Island, 731-1000, Westchester, Rockland, 664-8200, and for our new teen tours, 718-338-TEEN. Welcome to the Camp Void edition of the Cinematic Void podcast, and like I said in the introduction, we're talking about some of the movies I screened in year one of Cinematic Void, when I, the first year I did Camp Void. And like I said, three of the movies were part of a triple bill. This first one was part of a different triple bill. It was, I felt I had to show this movie because of what it is. It's from 1980. It's directed by Sean S. Cunningham, who also produced Last House on the Left and directed the movie Spring Break, which we talked about a couple podcasts ago. It stars Betsy Palmer, Adrian King, some guy you might have heard of named Kevin Bacon, Walt Gurney, a.k.a. Crazy Fucking Ralph, and Ari Lehman, who played a wee little lad named Jason. So, of course, we're talking about Friday the 13th, the original. Screenplay was by Victor Miller, as a memorable score by Henry Manfredi, and, of course, top-notch special effects by effects legend Tom Sabini. If you somehow have never seen this movie, which might be impossible, but, you know, it happens. There's people who still haven't seen Citizen Kane. Um, I'm one of them. Well, that's a fair point. But you've seen Friday the 13th. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it. So, here's a plot in case you haven't seen it. Uh, you know, I shouldn't call people out for having blind spots and things they haven't seen. Because you either haven't got around to it, don't want to get around to it, or it's just like... Yeah, you may not want to. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into both of why and why not to watch this one. But anyway, the plot is a group of camp counselors are stalked and murdered by an unknown assailant while trying to reopen a summer camp which was the site of a child's drowning and a grisly double murder years before. We'll talk about the title Friday the 13th. The only correlation is that the day that they're trying to reopen this camp is a Friday the 13th. It doesn't say what year. You don't get any kind of like distance of like when those murders happen, that kid drowned, that kind of stuff. Is this a day that was notorious? Like the, the date Friday the 13th, was that known as a bad luck thing? Or like, I mean, probably 13 has been a bad luck thing for a while, but Friday the 13th, did that really come from this? No, it, it, Friday the 13th existed before there was a franchise. And we'll get into why this movie's called Friday the 13th. I mean, you know, before I get too far in it, I'm going to go on record and be honest. I'm not a huge fan of this series. And I know a lot of people love it. And... I'm going to try to be nice about it because, 
you know, I, I do shit on things I don't like. And obviously, Cinematic Boy Podcast, you're going to get my opinion. But, like, I know this is a beloved franchise. But I think I'm going to bring up a lot of the positives from this first film. I'm also going to bring up the things that I don't think work. And I'm also going to bring up why I think, like, the series is just ridiculous. And, like, I don't know how it exists. Because just based on this first movie. I like it. I don't love it. But I'm a fan. You know, I, I'm maybe just not a fan of this first one as much. Like, the rest of them I have a bit of more nostalgia for. And, and there's probably a reason why, which, again, we'll get into it. But, like, I for Camp Void, I played it on as a triple feature. It was for, I I did two shows of the Arrow for Camp Void that year. The first one was the Final Camp Out Part 1, which was The Burning, Sleepaway Camp, and um, Twisted Nightmare. And then I did the Final Camp Out Part 2, which was Friday the 13th, Summer Camp Nightmare, and Sleepaway Camp 2. And I got a uncut UK print. Friday 13th because in the states it was censored like the the big scene is there's a girl getting her throat cut and it like fades to white in the UK cut like all the gore kind of lingers a little bit more mm. so and that was a you know shout out to Harry Guerrero that's his UK print he also had a UK print of the burning which was a little more uncut than what was state size it was still missing a little bit of things but nothing too major cool. but the main reason I end up playing Friday 13th because one if you're going to do a summer camp horror thing, you're going to have to play one of these movies at some point. And two, it enabled me to play a movie that I thought people really should see, which was um, Burt L. Dragon's Summer Camp Nightmare, which was the second feature. And he came out along with Penelope Spears, who did Decline of Western Civilization. She was a screenwriter on the movie and worked with Burt a lot. So they did, a Q- they did an introduction kind of Q&A right before Summer Camp Nightmare. And it was really cool. And people really dug it. It's not a horror movie. It's not a slasher movie. It's just like... It's kind of a more, like, grittier, like, meatballs or something. Hmm. Okay. I, I, I think I'm underselling it by saying that. But it's a summer camp movie where the kids, like, rebel against the camp counselors. One of the, I think the head of the camp is played by Chuck Connors or something like that. And there's also a bit a battle of a band sequence where one of the bands plays a fear song, played Beef Baloney. Oh, cool. <laughs> which is definitely because of Penelope. Now, with with that said, there are things in this movie and the series I do like, and I will give praise where praise is due. But, as I've already stated, I'm also going to not hold back on the things I don't like. So, before we get into the good and the bad, how did Friday the 13th become born? First answer, only answer really, money. Because Sean S. Cunningham saw the money that Halloween made, and he was like, let's do that too. He was inspired by that and another surprise hit that you might have heard of, starring a guy by the name of Bill Murray called Meatballs. So he took Meatballs and Halloween and married them together to make Friday the 13th. Cunningham called upon Hallmark Releasing, the distributor who had released his production of Wes Craven's Last House and Left, to put money up for it. A little bit about Hallmark Releasing, because it's an interesting distributor, because they basically infamously use the it's only movie tagline they use in last house in the trailer and then they proceeded to use it for almost every other fucking movie they put out Hmm. or a variation of it they also like to retitle their films just kind of cashing in on their other success so i'll give you some examples they released a movie called scream and die which became the house that vanished they liked using houses and pieces of houses as you're gonna see real quick let sleeping corpses lie aka living dead manchester moore became don't open the window yeah, that's a strange one. Yeah. Night Train Murders, which was an Italian kind of giallo last house on the left kind of hybrid, became the new house on the left. They also, and I 
not 100% if it was them or another distributor that liked them, but they did have the rights to this movie. They released Tombs of the Blind Dead, or a company like them, and they recut it with a fake prologue, turning it into a Planet of the Apes cash-in Revenge of Planet Ape, where it basically has an introduction saying this movie is tied into the Planet of the Apes, and then proceeds to go with the Templar Knights thing without ever mentioning it again. Legend has it, almost 3,000 years ago, a simian civilization of super-intelligent apes struggled with man to gain control of this planet. In the end, man conquered ape after a brutal battle, which saw him destroy the ape, his culture, and society. After this battle, man tortured and killed all the ape prisoners by piercing their eyes with a red-hot poker. One of the prisoners, who was also the leader of the apes, vowed they would return from the dead to avenge man's brutality at a point in time before man destroyed Earth himself. That time is now. We actually played that print with Plan the Apes one time. Because Grant's like, what's a weird Plan the Apes ripoff? And I was like, well, you can play Revenge of Planet the Ape. It's Tombs of the Blind Dead. Awesome. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. And I have to mention this one because it's important to Friday the 13th. They released Mario Bava's A Bay of Blood as Twitch of the Death Nerd. And we got to keep that in mind, as I said, because it comes into play with Friday the 13th. Hmm. Very, very completely. Screenwriter Victor Miller was hired to write the script, and his original title was A Long Night at Camp Blood. Which, kind of long. Kind of works. But Sean had other ideas, so while Victor was doing some rewrites, Cunningham rushed out and placed an ad in Variety, retitling the film Friday the 13th. Why did he retitle it Friday the 13th? You want to take a guess, Nick? Halloween. There you go. Because Halloween was a success, and before that you also had Black Christmas, Sean had the idea that, like, if you name your movie after a holiday, or, you know, traditionally uh, with Friday the 13th, it represents bad luck, it it would sell itself. Like, the, they even commissioned art for this ad in Variety, where it's like Friday 13th breaking glass, because, you know, breaking a mirror glass mm-hmm. is like seven years bad luck or whatever. It's a great ad. It's a great ad, and it's really smart. And, you know, it proved to be smart because when you got to think after Friday 13th, how many slasher movies came out that were tied to holidays? You have My Bloody Valentine. You have April Fool's Day. You have Happy Birthday to Me. You know, I, I tell you what, I for sure never would have seen Long Night at Camp Blood 7. No, that's too long of a title. It, it just never would have happened. No. So it was a smart move on his part. There was also another reason he placed this ad. He wanted to see if there was another movie called Friday the 13th before locking the title. Well, there was. A really terrific regional horror film called The Orphan, which was released the year before Cunningham's movie Friday the 13th as Friday the 13th, The Orphan. That film deals with a man who is plagued with horrific headaches that he believes makes him commit murder. It also gave a headache to the producers who ended up paying the rights holder of the orphans so they could take that Friday the 13th title. Gotta lock that in. And now, now people don't care. You can just like, I, I will also make a movie called Inception. You can't stop me. Exactly. That's <laughs> why you got Crash, the Cronenberg yeah. car crash fetishism movie. And then you got Crash, the bullshit Oscar winning terrible movie. For sure. So... I do. Th- I know Roger Corman made a movie called Fast and the Furious, and the producers that actually paid him money to use that title. Huh. So, okay. 
it still happens, but like when it's like a common thing, it gets a little iffy. Like I don't think you can really copyright the word crash or whatever. But Friday the Thirteenth was distinct enough that like he had to get that locked down. So that's what he took care of. It helped bring more attention to major studios who were looking to capitalize on the success of what was that movie again, Nick? Uh, uh, Thanks Killing. Close. Wrong holiday. It. Halloween, because Halloween was independently produced and made a shit ton of money, the majors are like, we can get into this slasher game. So, as Friday was being made and was independently produced, the major studios were like bidding on it because it was made for like, I think, half a million, maybe a million, something like that. And, you know, to them, it's just like, it's not much of an investment because you buy the film, you put like a half a million, million dollars in marketing and other stuff like that. You put a Another million in promotion. So you're spending 2.5 on this movie. It's going to at least make that back. So it's 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 low risk, high reward type thing. That's what Paramount did. Paramount ended up winning the rights. And funny enough, I think, I don't want to say for all of it, but I know for most of the early sequels, Friday the 13th, they were all independently produced and then picked up and distributed by Paramount. Really? It's an interesting way to do it because then it's just like, again, low cost, low commitment for potentially a high turnaround and high reward. And as I said, Paramount ended up getting the rights to it and Warner Brothers got the international, which is weird that like a major studio would pick up international because I think because of like things that were coming out of Italy and like, of course, Halloween, the, there was a sense of a horror boom that was happening. And everyone, hey, studios like money. They like making money. And the less money they have to put in to make money, they're going to be all about it. So we kind of talked about how Friday the 13th was born. So let's talk about the good. These are things I like about the movie. And you might not like the same things that I do, but again, you know, it's, it's okay to disagree. And Nick might even disagree with me on these. But the, the first thing I kind of like about Friday the 13th, it, it has a giallo element. It's, you know, you get a POV killer. You don't know who it is. They got... I don't think they have black gloves or anything like that, but you see boots and that kind of thing. And it's also kind of like a murder mystery. I think one of the templates for it was Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians, which has been used countless times. And it's been used countless times in Giallo's. It's it's pretty formula at this point, but that's kind of what they wrote with. And it's, you know, staple backbone of Giallo. The murder set pieces and Tom Savini's effects. Now, Tom was coming off Dawn of the Dead, which was a huge independent hit. And basically changed the game for how special effects are done. Obviously, Dick Smith and Rick Baker were coming around. Dick Smith did crazy, innovative shit for The Exorcist and a bunch of other movies. But this Tom was opening up the gore game, which was going to be the next big thing. So Friday 13th producers like, we need that guy to take our movie to the next level. And, you know, I, I think there's some good effects. There's a lot of aftermath effects. There's... I think one of the most graphic things is like the arrow going through Kevin Bacon's neck as he's laying on the bed. That one girl that's running through the woods gets her throat cut. That's a nasty throat cut, especially like if you see it uncut and how much it fucking bleeds out. Some grisly, grisly shit. But, you know, I'm not going to knock it for the fact that a lot of it's aftermath. Like the axe murder. You don't see the axe go in the face, but you see the axe hanging out of the head and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Still good stuff. And one thing I want to mention... Even though it's a pretty good, I'd say it's a great effect, is when Mrs. Voorhees gets decapitated. 
and they do the slow-mo and you can see the hairy knuckles of Tom Savini's assistant, Tasso N. Starvatsky, subbing in for Betsy Palmer. You see his hands up, like writhing around as like blood spurting out of the neck and it's just like, why does she have hairy knuckles? Oh, because it's not her, but it's a little funny thing that you can catch. Other things I like, Adrian King and Betsy Palmer as the final girl and villain are both really great in this movie. And plus you have a really great cat and mouse thing between them at the end. And I guess we should mention that if in case you didn't know, I think you know through cultural osmosis, if you see Scream, it's like a plot point that there's no Jason Voorhees as the killer in the first one. It's his mom. And I think a lot of people sometimes forget that. Maybe not so much now, but there was a time where a lot of people like just assumed Jason was in there from day one, you know? And it's kind of interesting because a lot of slasher movies don't have female killers. It's very uncommon. It's more common in Giallo's, but we'll touch touch on that a little bit later. Got Manfredini's score, the kick, 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 ma, 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 ma. You know, which is supposed to be kill mom. Right on. Yeah, they. I think they used a, a echoplex for that uh, to make that sound. So they really they're just saying it once, and then it just echoes. And, and those have those machines have, you know, it's not like a, a digital effect that's just creating it to to happen again and again. It's it's an actual tape inside the machine that records it saying it, and then goes back through and plays it back real quick. And that's, I mean, like musicians have used that. It's like from the seventies or something. I mean, it it gives the movie a nice touch, like. I think the score is really great, even beyond that, because that's like the psycho, or like John Carpenter's main Halloween theme. It's just so distinct that the second you hear it, not even the second, like the millisecond you hear it, you know what, you know what, what the song is. I mean, just that, dude, that's genuinely creepy. Oh, it is. I'll say the score, because there's not a lot of score in this movie it's kind of spaced out and i think even under most of the murder scenes there's not a lot of score so it's just kind of like raw Mm -hmm. in a way so it's a great use of music and the music that there is really good which if it's going to be sparse music your fucking cues need to be tight so great great score in this movie and my absolute favorite thing in friday the 13th is the half-assed red herring because no one believes he's the fucking killer crazy fucking ralph A.K.A. the guy that's just like, you're all doomed. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like they, uh, what was that fucking Cannibal the Musical? Mm-hmm, there yeah. Was, I think there was, they ripped that off in there. I mean, it's in a million different things. Yeah, there's a variation of the crazy old guy. There's even one, I think, in My Bloody Valentine that pops up telling, like, you know, the history of Harry Ward and shit like that. I haven't watched My Bloody Valentine in a minute, so I might be misremembering, but, like, there's a variation of the crazy doomsayer, but like probably like the uh, probably even cabin in the woods. There's a guy that comes out and says, "Hey, you know, yeah, I, I think you're right about don't, that. Don't go over there." Yeah, like <laughs> the, there's always that crazy old fuck. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm gonna say this. Like I feel like the series fucked up because there should have been a crazy Ralph spinoff because that's the guy I want to spend the movie with. Once he hops on his bike, I just want to see where the fuck Ralph's going. If he's going to the grocery store to the bar. You know, go in the post office to mail some packages where he just writes doomed on them and mails them to people randomly. Like, that's a character I want to get to know. Like, that backstory has got to be amazing. But sadly, I think he's barely in the movie. And then they fucked up because they had Ralph killed in part two. And unwarranted. 
Ralph didn't deserve to die. They he's, just, he's not a horny teenager. No, he's just some old fuck that's just like telling people they're going to die. And then they ace him. That guy should have been in every single one of these fucking movies. Like, huge, huge mistake. They should have brought him back in the next one. I mean, shit. How many times <laughs> can, like, Jason come back but crazy Ralph can't? See? I don't know. So, with that said, this leads into the things I don't like about the film and kind of the franchise in general. To paraphrase the great Giallo screenwriter Ernest Castaldi, who we talked quite a bit for the Sergio Martino episode since he wrote all those movies. He always said, introducing a new character in the last act, that's the killer, is cheating. And not taking anything away from Betsy Palmer's performance, but Mrs. Voorhees is a big fucking fat cheat. It's cheating. You're just throwing a character in there because it's like, it's a murder mystery. And it's like, who is it that's at the camp? No, it's just some fucking angry mom that's like holding a grudge. That, like, she's taking out on people that have nothing to do with it anymore, other than they're trying to reopen the camp. You know, and I've seen this get a lot of praise, being like, you know, oh, it's a female killer, and you don't really know, you don't know about the setup, but it's like, I call bullshit on that too, because Derek Argento did at least three times. He did it in Bird with the Crystal Plumage, he did it in Four Flies on Grey Velvet, and he did it in Deep Red. All three had female killers that you don't know that they're female until the very end. And he also introduced all those characters early on in the film to set them up that they could potentially be the killer. And clues. He didn't just shoehorn someone in just to be the killer in the last act. So that's my biggest beef. Another thing that I have a problem with, and this is continuing on the giallo end of things, the unacknowledged lifts from Mario Bava's A Bay of Blood. Cunningham claims to this day he never saw the film. But I call bullshit because Last House on the Left was distributed by Hallmark Releasing, who also put out A Bay of Blood under the title Twitch of the Death Nerve, and even paired them on double and triple features together. You know, he might not have seen it, but he had to be aware of it. He had to be aware of the premise. It's like, basically, A Bay of Blood is the template for Friday the 13th. And it goes even further when you get into some of the sequels, specifically Part 2, where it has direct lifts from A Bay of Blood in that movie. Complete murder sequences, redone. Almost shot for shot. And that's not even getting into Sackhead Jason, the first incarnation of Jason in the flesh as a killer, who basically is a ripoff of the killer from the town of Dread of Sundown. Yeah. I, I'm surprised he didn't have a fucking trombone and kill someone in it. <laughs> it's, it's, he's, Jason kind of sucks until he gets the mask. Yeah, he still kind of sucks once he gets the mask. It's... <laughs> and... This other thing that this is a problem with a lot of slashers is you don't really give a shit about most of the characters. And this is kind of when like, you know, slashers kind of just kind of started getting away from like character development, whatever. It was just like horny teens. You had the comic relief one. You had like the kind of sincere one. But it's just like most of those people you don't give a fuck about. They're just disposable. They're just there to be murdered. And it just kind of makes it a soulless exercise. It's just like, most of the people in the movie didn't do anything wrong. Actually, none of them did anything wrong, except for the two kids in the beginning who let Jason drown. So they had it coming, but like everyone else is just like, Mrs. Voorhees just fucking acing people because she's still mad. This also leads to, because a lot of the kids are being murdered, and they're being murdered after they have sex, or they're smoking weed, or that kind of stuff. 
is bullshit morality. Yep, back to that. I mean, a lot of people said this start in Halloween, but that was not John Carpenter's intention because, like, everyone's like, oh, the pure virgin lived. But, like, I do remember Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode did smoke a joint in that car, so she wasn't that pure. Granted, she was coughing a lot and probably didn't really inhale, but she attempted it. But in this movie, if you do something that is viewed bad in the Christian sense of, like, premarital sex, doing drugs, drinking, you get fucking whacked. Obviously, there's characters in this movie that didn't do that stuff that died. But throughout the series, this became the narrative that, like, if you do something that's not good in the eyes of God, Angel of Death Jason's coming for vengeance. I don't know. It's... I. Straight edge revenge. Straight edge revenge. Yeah, it kind of is. It's like he's Milton straight edge. <laughs> or, you know, he's like the fucking machete-wielding Tipper Gore. Like, regulating. Like, nope, can't do that. I definitely think of him as more of a, a machete-wielding, you know, Carl from Earth Crisis. I don't know. And I guess besides this moral superiority that complex that jason's mom and then jason later took on you get like the murders are unmotivated it's like normally like in giallos when people die it's because they know something they saw something or they have information that could cause the killer to get caught these people don't they're not doing anything other than just like trying to put a camp back together that's a crime i don't know it's just unmotivated and that's you know it's just it's, it's it's just a stupid job. You shouldn't die going to camp. Especially the girl that's in the Jeep that has to get out and run away and gets her throat cut. The fuck she do? Nothing. She's just trying to get a fucking paycheck. She's like, this is the only job I can get is working at this summer camp. And what's she get? Fucking aced. So it's just unmotivated murders. And I know a lot of slashers kind of went in that territory. But it's just like, it just kind of makes it bland. Because then it's just like, Oh, anyone can die, and, like, Jason's this killing machine, but it's just, like, there's no motivation to it other than, like, people doing stuff that's, like, not morally good. Which, you know, ties back to the morality bullshit that comes with these movies. The Jason appearance at the end of the film. The only reason this exists is because Tom Savini was a huge fan of Carrie and was like, we need a big scare at the end. I tell you what, fucking, every time I watch this... It gets to the Mrs. Voorhees part, and I'm still just like, I don't care about this movie. And then the Jason thing happens at the end, and I fucking jump off the couch with my arms raised like, fuck yeah. And that, you know what I mean? Like, the, it sells the whole movie for me. Now, there's some debate. And it wasn't even supposed to be there. Yeah, and it wasn't supposed to be there. Originally, it was just Adrian King's character just floating in the boat until the cops got her and on the surface it's not a bad idea you know maniac had a similar kind of scare in it as well and a lot of movies were doing the cheap last jump scare Mm -hmm. but then they pivot the whole franchise to this moment because even in that script even when they did it it was supposed to be just a dream sort of like how the carrie scare where amy Irvin's character gets grabbed by carrie's hand reaching out of the ground was just a a dream scare Mm mm-hmm and I'm going to read some, well, before I do that, I'm just going to say, like, you know, Jason's now the killer, but he's no longer a child. He's a grown-ass man in all the sequels. How many years later was this supposed to be? 
Well, if he's dead, dead people will fucking age and grow up and get taller. <laughs> it makes no fucking sense. <laughs> and then if you take the other way of looking at it, and no supernatural thing is like, was Jason not dead? Did his mom just think he was dead? And he was just living on the camp, just growing old. Didn't go think to go fucking tell his mom that he was still alive. He was living in the lake. Yeah, but you would think <laughs> if he was still fucking alive, wouldn't you go say, "Mom, I'm not dead. Everything's cool." And if that's not the case, he's just a little asshole. Unless he didn't like his mom. But then, like, after her head got cut off, he just puts it as a fucking, you know, kind of on display at his, like, little crib he built for himself. But it does make sense. He's a little dead kid that becomes a big dead adult. Or is he dead? I don't know. And you get the supernatural bullshit that makes no sense. I don't even know what to say about this. But I do have a couple quotes. One from Victor Miller and one from Stephen Miner, who was the producer on the first one and went on to direct parts two and three about this whole Jason thing. So this is Stephen Miner. He said, he wasn't your villain. He's just a figment of someone's imagination. But that didn't stop you from putting him in part two and then creating a franchise around him. And Victor Miller, who wrote the screenplay, said, Jason was dead from the very beginning. He was a victim, not a villain. But yet, where are we now? You can't make money like that. No, I mean, the other option would have been bring back Mrs. Voorhees, but, like, her head's cut off unless you make some, like, crazy movie where her head just flies around and attacks people. Actually, yeah, unless you make some kind of crazy movie where someone continually comes back from the dead over and over. But then why doesn't, mom, why doesn't his mom come back? Why is it only him? Yeah. That's the new sequel they're going to do once they finally get the rights. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the thing with the movie now. The rights are tied up because Victor... Victor Miller, who wrote the screenplay, actually, because after a certain amount of years, the person that created the movie could go and claim the rights back. Wes Craven's estate did that for Nightmare on Elm Street, so the Craven estate actually controls Elm Street. They don't control the movies that are already made. Those are still owned by New, New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers. But in order for new movies to be made, they're in control of it. So Victor Miller did the same thing, and Sean S. Cunningham was like, nope. So they're fighting court. Mm-hmm. Which is insane that, like, I think the last time there was a Friday the 13th movie was, like, 2009 with that remake, which I know a lot of people were like, oh, I like this remake. I fucking hated the remake. Yeah. I, it's my least favorite one of those, of these movies. And I'm not going to spend time about it. I, I do want to throw this out there. The day that I went to go see that Friday the 13th remake, I was with a mutual friend of ours, Jim DeHaven. We went to the local theater. We're about to walk up to go get her ticket. Some dude with an ICP belt buckle comes out. He's like, yo, man, you're going to go see the new Friday? Jason's a fucking beast. And we turn to each other. It's like, this movie's going to fucking suck. And boy, did it. Now, I know some of you like that movie, but not a fan. Not a fan. Not going to go into why I don't like it. Just, I don't like it. But, you know, here's some final thoughts. As a standalone movie, I think Friday is a decent mid-range slasher. It's like a five. It's got some good stuff, got some bad stuff. It's kind of unremarkable. You know, I think there's a lot of other slashers that came before it and after that just are light years ahead of it, like obviously Halloween or My Bloody Valentine. And, you know, there's good stuff, there's bad stuff, and then there's stuff that just gets too much credit. But at the end of the day, it did usher in the slasher era. Like, if that movie hadn't been a monstrous hit, you wouldn't have got all the slasher movies that came out in the next few years and then the ones that came later. 
and you wouldn't have gotten like probably scream and stuff because then halloween would have been on an island on its own and i don't think halloween would have done a sequel if friday the 13th didn't make a shit ton of money so it it has that going for it you know it made money it spawned a franchise and a modern day horror icon which you know there wasn't a lot because you didn't really have those until you got back in the 70s 80s when you had leatherface then you had Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, Pinhead, that kind of stuff. Because before that, the only monster icons were like the universal ones. You know, at some point, they'll get this whole lawsuit thing settled. And the slapshot slasher who misses his mom and is afraid of drowning is going to be back at it, hacking up horny teens like no one's business. But until then, you got like how many of those movies? Like 11? Yeah, I think it's... You have 10, because Jason goes space in Jason X, which I do like. I like Jason X. Oh, yeah. But we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we return, more Camp Void here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Friday the 13th. You may only see it once, but that will be enough. Friday the 13th. Rated R. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemanus Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Welcome back. Things are now heating up on the Cinematic Void podcast as we talk about our next film for the Camp Void edition here. It's a movie from 1981. It stars Brian Matthews, Lay Ayers, and Lou David, who played this creepy guy named Cropsey. might have heard of him. The film was also the on-screen debut of Fisher Stevens, future Oscar winner Holly Hunter, and George Costanza himself, Jason Alexander. Of course, we're talking about Tony Malam's The Burning. So before we get into a little bit more of The Burning... Nick, why exactly did the burning come about? I have a feeling somebody was trying to make some money. And why was that? I would say the success of Friday the 13th. You are correct, sir. So as Friday the 13th is a bloodier carbon copy of Halloween, the burning is a carbon copy of Friday the 13th, like a lot of slashers that came after Friday. Also involved in this movie, and again... Getting that paycheck and cashing in the success of Dawn of the Dead and Friday the 13th was, I guess we could call the real star of the movie, Tom Savini and his special effects. The movie was edited by Jack Shoulder, who went on the direct Alone in the Dark, which is a really, really, really cool slasher if you haven't checked it out. He also did Elm Street 2, as well as The Hidden. It also features an absolutely bonkers and borderline absurdly ridiculous score by Rick Wakeman of Yes fame. And last, and certainly the least, this was the first film produced by Harvey Me Too Weinstein and his brother Bob. 
And, this, and in fact, this was also the first case of Harvey sexually harassing someone on a film production. He was accused by a former production assistant who said Harvey answered the door when she was trying to go get some checks signed and nothing but a towel and tried to get her to give him a massage and then harassed her about it the whole production. It actually, the, nothing ever came of this until the whole Me Too thing came out. But it's like, it's fucking insane that the first movie this scumbag made, he was already doing this shit. Basically, he just made a career out of, like, just, you know, sexually harassing and assaulting people, you know, over the years, as well as other crimes such as getting Shakespeare in Love a Best Picture Oscar. So, terrible, awful fucking human being. The Weinsteins suck. You know it. I know it. We all know it. So for the rest of the discussion of the burning, I will no longer utter their shit-stained names. Fuck them. That's it. <sighs> So what's this movie about? Well, a former summer camp caretaker, you know, gets horribly burned from a prank gone wrong because that happens in life. And years later, starts lurking around upstate New York summer camp or some summer camp, not the same one that he was fucking toasted at and just starts killing teenagers in response for being disfigured. Yeah. Killing different teenagers. Different teenagers. Not the same ones because those teenagers already grew, grew up and probably got jobs on Wall Street or something like that. Cropsey, who's the boogeyman in this movie, is actually based on a real urban legend from upstate New York. And funny enough, another film was going into production at the same time this was about the same subject. Once this film found out that like there was an other Cropsey movie in the works, they kind of pivoted, changed their idea, and did created a new boogeyman named Madman Mars. Of course, I'm talking about Madman, which is a really good summer camp slasher. I didn't show it as a camp void. I showed it at Beyond Fest with a score release with Death Waltz. And if you haven't checked that out, I think Vinegar Syndrome put that on Blu-ray, so it's a really it's a really cool slasher. So that basically just left Cropsey to the burning. Now, this film, along with the next two films we, we will be discussing, I screened back in 2016 as the final campout part one at the Aero Theater during the original Camp Void. And we already talked about why the burning was made. It's cashing in on Friday the 13th. And in order to compete with that, they had to go for the gore and all the slasher mayhem. And if you're going to do it, you might as well hire the best in the business. So they brought in Tom Sabini to do the effects. Tom turned down Friday the 13th Part 2 to do the burning, interesting enough. And I'll say this, I think his effects are light years ahead of what he did in Friday the 13th. I don't know if you would agree or disagree on that, Nick. I guess I hadn't really, I just hadn't considered uh, uh, whether one, one of uh, the effects being better than the other just because they're both Savini, you know what I mean? Like, so it's just, but yeah. I would, did he have, did he have more money the second time? Did it, or just like he already, he, had, he did it once already, so he knew how to do it better. I, it's a little bit of that, and I think he's, I, with Savini, when he was working with Romero, he was coming up with gags, and I think he had more leeway to come up with gags and, like, you know, do a bunch of stuff, and, like, you know, right off the bat, the movie kicks off with a Hall of Fame firewalk. Like, that stuntman, like, should have got extra pay, because that firewalk goes on. That's a long time to set a human being on fire. Right on. <laughs> it's, it's fucking incredible. Besides that, you get sheer horror, you know, get it? Because he used those giant fucking shears that kill people. And, you know, the obvious showstopper in this movie is that canoe attack. Where, like, they're, a bunch of the campers are out canoeing. They go up this empty canoe. And he's like, what's up? And all of a sudden, Cropsey pops up and starts, like, chopping fingers, stabbing people in the neck with that thing. It's fucking amazing. It's a Hall of Fame slasher attack. 
is, you know, it's the best thing in the movie. Totally. And it really stands out. Now, the other thing is Savini wasn't really happy with the Cropsy face, facial effect that he did, the, the burn the burn face. But I think it actually works because it's really, really creepy. Yeah. It's nasty looking, which, you know, if you're going to have a psychotic killer, got to be ugly. Jason takes off that hockey mask, ugly as shit. Freddy Krueger, ugly as shit. Oh, yeah. It's just how it has to be. You can't have some handsome guy running around hacking people up. No, that, that's just a serial killer. But <laughs> right. Other things that I kind of, you know, I like a little bit better than Friday with this one. I think the movie's just way sleazier. Because, like, in case in point, like, when Cropsy finally gets out of the hospital after none of his skin grafts take, he gets picks up a hooker, or a hooker picks him up, I'm not really sure, goes back to her place, she's like, oh my god, no, get away from me, and like, that's the first person he kills. It feels like a kill from Maniac, or one of those, like, you know, urban slashers kind of thing. It just, it just sets an extra sleazy tone before you get to the camp. But on the downside is, the majority of the campers are pretty unmemorable. I know Holly Hunter's in the movie, but like, I'll be goddamn if I can pick her out in that movie. The only exception, though, is Jason Alexander... And his glorious full head of hair. <laughs> Obviously, he's the comic relief character, which became the slasher staple. And usually they get killed at either like these guys, like the comedy guys, like finally get laid. So they get killed. Like It's like Crispin Glover in like part four or something. But miraculously, Jason Alexander's character lives through the movie. Yeah. So I, I, I just assume it's his charisma. Or, like, some George Costanza-like magic that got him out of it. I don't know. It, it It's a different turn. But, like, honestly, like, his performance is, outside of Savini's effects, it's the best thing in that movie. It's realistic, you know. It's like, do, do, don't you think George Costanza could probably talk his way out of it, out of that situation, you know? It's, it's like, <laughs> I can't handle the shears! I don't know. It's just... <laughs> Come on. Come on! <laughs> just something It's like... I didn't pee in the water or whatever. <laughs> just, just some fucking dumb George Costanza thing. Shrinkage! <laughs> uh, but, but then there's another thing that I kind of half like, half don't like is that Rick Wakeman score. You know, I'll say this. It's all at once amazing and fucking obnoxious. In the movie, I think it works really well. But like, if you pull those cues out individually... It's it. Someone just feels like Rick Wakeman let his cat walk across the fucking synthesizer or keyboard, and it's just like the fuck's going on. It's just it's kind of nonsensical, but it's also a man that made a like epic King Arthur ice cabade musical yeah. that was like three hours long or something like that, and got a song based off of it called "I Like Short Songs" by the Dead Kennedys, who dedicated it to Rick Wakeman. Hit up your Spotify or Apple Music if you've never heard that song. It's, it's I like short songs. Do you like short songs, Nick? I do like short songs. Love short songs. And, yeah, that's kind of the burning. You know, it's, I'd say it's above average, like, almost top-tier slasher in some ways. It's got some problems. I wouldn't put it, like, I think, when I think Ultimate Slashers, even though it's kind of a proto-slasher, I think, you know, Black Christmas, My Bloody Valentine, stuff like that. I think it's a couple notches below it. I think it's ahead of Friday the 13th for me. And this is this came out before uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Correct. So, uh, so it did the it's it did the burnt up guy first. Yeah, it's it's got that going. So between between that and the gardening shears, like sold. I think this one's sick. Yeah, I mean, it, I think you know for slashers, it's gory, 
yeah, most of the characters aren't really memorable. But, and that's you know, why they get killed. That's why they get killed. I mean, that's kind of the slasher formula. And I've always said I'm more a giallo person than a slasher because, like, I need a little more motivation and, like, thought behind the murder. But as slasher goes, I think it's pretty entertaining. And to kind of close things out, I want to give Holly Hunter, who, unfortunately, like, I feel bad because, like, I've seen this movie countless times and I can never point her out. It, you know, I think she has a sizable role, maybe. I don't Noah. I mean, I just watched it again recently, and just like, I feel like she's just so young in the movie, it doesn't register as Holly Hunter. It's not Raising Arizona or something like that. But, you know, someone actually asked her about the burning, and she gave a pretty honest answer, and I think it's kind of cool to end, end on it. This was from an interview with Total Film, and this is what she said. Well, look, I got paid more than I ever could have imagined on the burning. I was making over $1,000 a week, which was incredible. I could make my rent. I didn't have to wait tables for a while. I got all these new friends, and I was kind of a glorified extra, which is probably why you miss her, because she doesn't have a lot to do. She also said, I got my Screen Actors Guild card, so it was fantastic. Good for you, Holly. Cool. I mean, that, that you know, the best, I think, her coming out of it, Fisher Stevens, great Savini effects, the movie's well-directed, too. I, I think it's, you know, I, I know I'm pointing out, like, the, the flaws in it, but, like, it's the flaws a lot of slashers had because the criteria was kill as many teens as possible. And it did a lot, especially in that canoe scene. But, you know, it gave us Jason Alexander, who went on to play one of the great TV characters of all time. Anyway, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but we're in turn more Camp Void, but no shrinkage on the Cinematic Void podcast. <laughs> This summer, if you're planning to go camping, don't. If you're looking forward to midnight swims, don't. Sneak on back to the campsite. Get some matches. Build us a hot fire. Don't be long. And if you're thinking about being with someone where no one can see you, don't. Because this summer, Legend of Terror isn't just a campfire story anymore. They say he smashed his way through the bunk room door, just a mass of flames. Cried out, I will return. I will have my revenge. He lives on whatever he can catch. Right now, he's out there watching, waiting. Who's there? One summer five years ago is about to happen again and again and again. The Burning. Welcome back. We've been talking about Camp Void films here on the Cinematic Void podcast, and up next. It was the second film I played in the Final Camp Out Part 1 triple feature when I was doing Camp Void back in 2016. It is, you know, I think I think it's a classic slasher. Would you agree with that? Yeah, totally. It's from 1983. It's directed by Robert Hiltzik. It is Sleepaway Camp. It stars Felissa Rose, Jonathan Kirsten, Karen Fields, Mike Kellen, and Desiree Gould. And for those who haven't seen it, Angela Baker, a shy, traumatized young girl, is sent to summer camp with her cousin, 
Surely after arrival, anyone with sinister or less than honorable intentions gets their comeuppance. And if you haven't seen that movie, we're going to obviously spoil it. Because you can't talk about the movie because there's a big surprise ending that kind of makes it... The, the surprise ending is what pushes it from being like middle-of-the-road slasher to very memorable. I wouldn't say it's top-tier in the way like a lot of slashers are, but like you'll never forget seeing this movie. And as I said, this was the second film in that Camp Boy triple feature. And Felissa Rose actually came out and did a Q&A after the movie which was really cool. She's a great guest, funny stories, audience loved it. But before we talk a little bit more about that, you know, we'll, let's talk about the film itself. Like the previous two films we discussed, this one starts out with a tragic event at a camp. But unlike Friday's little Jason drowning, Cropsy doing the human torch, this one's a little bit different. So first off, you have this gay couple, John and Lenny, which I'd say is pretty progressive in 1983 because they're presented as normal people, like it's just a normal, loving relationship, how it always should have been, but obviously wasn't like that for many, many years. And they have their two children, Angela and Peter, and they're just going on a little boating fun thing for the day near Camp Arawak. The kids decide the pool prank and they flip the boat and everyone's like having fun splashing around but at the same time one of the camp counselors from the camp is like racing around in the boat loses control and basically crashes into him they kill john who's the biological father to both peter and angela and then kills one of the kids you don't see which kid died which comes into play much much later then you cut to a few years later and you see the kid that's still alive is angela and she's now living with her crazy Aunt Martha. And since this is the 80s, and gay marriage was unfortunately not legal, didn't exist until many years later, Lenny, the surviving member of the couple, was not allowed to keep the surviving child, who was Angela. And Angela had to go live with John's next of kin, which was Aunt Martha, who's batshit crazy. One of the weirdest, strangest character in, like, any horror movie, let alone any movie. It's a great, weird, out-of-step, out-of-time performance. Like, I don't know how to describe it. It's just, like, it's wild, it's weird. It's really unique. So, we're at the present, and Angela, with her cousin Ricky, who's Aunt Martha's son, are getting sent to camp. What camp? Camp Arawak. The same camp where her brother and father were brutally murdered in a boat accident. That can't be trauma-inducing at all. You know, I never went to summer camp. Did you ever go to summer camp, Nick? I didn't go to summer camp, but I went to uh, I went to like a church camp thing a couple times, where it was more of just like for the weekend. But like we stayed there at the camp and like went down to the lake and did the whole fucking thing. There was a mess hall, fucking you know, wake up early in the morning and pray <laughs> and sing and and eat food, and uh and I remember specifically. And I guess it kind of tells me like what era it was, like what year it was, because um, the uh, the Fat Boys and the Beach Boys had they did Wipeout together, and it was like the late '80s, like '87, I think. And uh, so I'm old as shit. And <laughs> when I was at that camp, you know, like, and we probably weren't even allowed to listen to the Fat Boys, but like we were like sneaking in the bunks, like listening to the Fat Boys and rapping along at seven or eight or however old I was, you know. That's crazy. Do you remember Pocket Rockers? Yeah. 
yeah. I had a pocket rocker. And I remember two little tapes. For those of you who don't know, pocket rockers were like this little novelty cassette thing where like you had a mini cassette. It wouldn't. It would. It was two sided. You had to flip over. It had two songs, but you never got a full song. You got fragments of a song. You got like maybe two minutes of a track. And I had that Beach Boys Fat Boy song as one. And the other one was the song Runaway by Bon Jovi. Nice. Which is, if you haven't heard that Bon Jovi song, it's the best song of their career. I know everyone's going to be saying Living on a Prayer or like the other hits, but like Runaway is a fucking straight banger. Highly recommend if you're a, if you're a fan of that kind of stuff. I'm not a Bon Jovi guy or anything, but like that song still rips. So... But, you know, back on the summer camp, I never went to the summer camp. The closest was maybe in fifth grade were for a week. We went to this place called Harford Glen in Harford County, Maryland. It was just like kind of north, north Harford County, like kind of out in the woods and stuff. It was like a, it was a camp. We actually camped. We had to shower, do all that stuff. That was the only time I ever went to a camp. But I never went to like those camps you see in movies where you're gone for the whole summer and you have like some kind of life affirming thing happened to you or you learned something or whatever happens in those things lose your virginity lose your virginity get or get killed by jason yeah that that's not that kind of stuff had bill murray as your camp counselor i don't know never had that experience but back to sleepaway camp like from my brief experience of what i did and it sounds like from your church camp thing it's kind of the same vibe it just, it just feels more real whereas the burning i guess is kind of real Friday, the camp's not even open. But the the main takeaway is, like, this camp feels like it's age-appropriate because, like, you know, it it wouldn't be a bunch of, like, 18-year-olds at a summer camp. It would be, like, you know, kids in middle school, maybe elementary school, and then maybe, like, early high school. And then the counselors are, like, maybe college students or something like that. So it, it feels very grounded in reality. Now, once we get to the camp, it becomes very apparent that Angela is very shy and awkward, which leads her to be a target for pretty much most of the camp. She gets bullied, especially by Judy, who's like the hot girl of the camp. Her cousin Ricky is very defensive when people pick on Angela, and it's basically Ricky and his friend Paul, who has a crush on Angela, who defends her a lot. And there's a couple other older counselors that like try to help her out too, but like basically it's just like most of the camp is just picking on Angela. And that's when you start getting the bodies piling up. And the first one's Artie the Cook, who tries to molest Angela, which, you know, I guess that's a fear, and that's probably why a lot of camps get shut down now, is because, like, shady shit like that. This guy gets what's coming to him. He gets a vat of boiling water dumped on him, and it's a really nasty, burning flesh boiling effect. Like, it's fucking painful. And so what does the head of the camp, this guy Mel, do? Oh, what any reasonable business owner would do covers everything up because he doesn't want any shit. Doesn't want to deal with police. It's like, doesn't want the camp to get shut down. Cause then he's going to be out of money. And he continues to do that throughout the movie. Every time someone turns up dead, it's just like, what happened to this person? I don't know. Just Mel, just covering shit up. Got to keep that paper coming in. And you know, basically anyone who seriously messes with Angela gets their comeuppance and you get a mix of some interesting and creative deaths. They might not be on that Savini level. I mean, I don't think they even had the close to the budget what the burning and Friday the 13th had. But I'd say effects are good. They're not graphic. I mean, they're a little graphic, but they're not like... It's not fucking um, Cropsy popping up and like chopping fingers, stabbing necks with those fucking gardening shears. But I say the inventiveness makes up for it. 
You get a drowning, you get a bee attack while someone's sitting on the shitter, you get a shower slashing, you get an arrow in the throat, and something that kind of sounds like might have been the subject of a Chris Barnes-era Cannibal Corpse record, smothered with a pillow while sexually assaulting you with a hot curling iron. Which, the explanation's more graphic than what you actually see, but like, it's, it's implied. It's rough. It's rough. It's it's nasty. I think um, I forget the name of the actress, but it was the mom from Malcolm in the Middle had auditioned for the Judy role, and once she saw the death scene, she's like, "Nope." Oh wow, pass, hard pass. So all the way, Ricky is set up as your red herring as the killer because he's you know defending Angela, and like usually after Angela gets bullied, he shows up, says something, and then like a couple scenes later. That person's dead. But that the thing is, is that the you basically it's hinted at that the killer might be a woman, especially when you get to that hot curling iron death where you see the silhouette of the the killer in the doorway and it's got long hair and all that. Mm-hmm. It's it's really effective. It's actually a really great slasher shot there of like the killer coming in because you have Judy like, oh, oh the fuck are you? I like. Don't turn the light on, that kind of stuff. Really well done. And this is what leads into, I'd say, what is one of the most shocking and unexpected endings in any horror exploitation film ever made. And that is, Angela is actually her brother Peter. Did you ever see that coming? I did not. As much as like things like Psycho and like that kind of stuff is kind of already spoiled before it actually you actually ever get around seeing it just through cultural osmosis. This is one of those things because it's well known, but it's not culturally as large as those. So if you go in cold, you don't see it coming. Hit you with that M night. Oh, that M. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least the movie didn't have like fucking grass or plants killing you or whatever the fuck the happening was. Or the, the village where it's like, oh, it's olden times, except it's really modern times. I'm not, I actually like M. Night, but like those two movies are just like, dog. Really looking forward to old, actually. Yeah, I mean, his last few movies, I think, have kind of stepped back up. So I'm yeah. glad to see him coming back, because if he had stuck on that trajectory with the village and the happening. Yeah. I mean, shout out to him, like, turning around, because that could have been, that could be, as you would say, a Mortal Kombat. Oh, no. We'll see, though. Maybe this next one will be... <laughs> you never know. It, films are a crapshoot, but... I didn't love Glass, actually. Ooh. Didn't love Glass. But I like that... I like that... Uh, I like that universe. Yeah, I, I... I think it's... Well, just get off topic briefly. I, I think... Yeah. He, I liked Unbreakable a lot. And I mean, it was, Unbreakable is incredible. The, the other two, I think, are fine. Mm-hmm. It's just like... I think Unbreakable is really incredible, and the other ones are like... It works. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But back to Sleepaway Camp. Before you get the full reveal, you get a little flashback of Aunt, Aunt Martha, who's, you basically just see all that weirdness you saw in that opening scene with her. You see why, because she's out of her fucking mind. She takes poor Peter and says, oh, I always wanted a little girl, and, you know, I already have a son, and he's going to be really excited when he has a new sister. And basically makes Peter become Angela. And I think Peter was young enough that like... And plus he's traumatized because his dad and his sister was just fucking killed. So who knows about his mind state. But like he gets forced to be a person he's not. 
I'm uh, I'm I'm reminded that um I think um oh, what's her name Felissa uh and the the woman that plays Angela I think she's married to one of the CKY guys now she who, is like one of the guys that was actually in the band CKY not the uh not the guys jumping off of jumping into bushes or whatever not the guys that eventually would lead into jackass happening right I I think you're right I I'm not 100 percent but I think you're right about it but so the way this movie reveals this after you know, the flashback is you have two camp counselors coming up to Angela who's holding the severed head of, like, the one boy that really liked her. She drops it, turns around, and reveals fully naked. You see a peen. And it's just, it's shocking. Because it's like, especially if you don't see it coming, it's like, what the fuck? Holy fuck. Like, exploitation, like, you know, this all started with the the psycho twist. It's another variation of, like, that that surprise ending of like you know Carrie Friday Thirteenth and Maniac and like people were pushing like how do you shock people? Yeah, people did not see that dick coming. No. And the thing about the movie is like there's no other explanation after it. You see that shot, it freezes on Felissa's Angela doing that like face thing where she's like, ah! and it freeze frames on it, and the credits roll. That's your fucking movie. It's fucking sick. It's, it's fucking insane. And when I screened it in 2016, I'm going to say about a good 70% of the audience hadn't seen it beforehand. No shit. So it was really cool to experience how it would have happened in 1983 when that was playing like theaters. And then, like, like you know, and, and of course, there are probably a lot of horror fans there. I So you know some of them, it's been spoiled but I just I hope for the sake of just I hope for the sake of it there were a, a few people that got really surprised. Oh no, the 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 fucking place like went insane. Cool. And then Felissa <laughs> came up and did a Q and A after. Hell yeah! From a screening and audience reaction standpoint, is one of the best I've ever witnessed in a theater. And like you know, I've been you know yeah I my personal best in theater experience was seeing Barrow Ground at six in the morning and like this came close just with the crowd energy and just like because there's things in sleepaway camp that like certain people will try to like i'm above this because you know there's low budget limitations like that's a lot of horror movies and like you start thinking you're above the movie and then the movie's like you're not above me we got you and it's just like it just perfectly played out now before we move on from sleepaway one of the biggest things I think that separates this from the other camp horrors we've been discussing is murder motivation. Everyone Angela kills in the film, except maybe Paul, the guy who gets his head cut off at the end, specifically bullied or wronged her. Although Paul did make out with Judy, so maybe that's that came into play a little bit. And, you know, Mrs. Voorhees did to, did kill the two counselors that were responsible for letting Jason drown, but everyone else in that movie had nothing to do with it, so she's just killing people. Cropsy, just taking out his aggression on any camper to make up for the fact that some other campers years ago set him on fire. With Angela, it was all because those people specifically fucked with her. So it's, it's a revenge movie. I don't know, what are your final thoughts on Sleepaway Camp, Nick? Big fan. It's a classic for a reason. Um, I wish I had been there for that screening, man. That's incredible. That sounds great. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it's beautiful when a movie plays as it was intended to play. And like, not a lot of movies get that, you know, 
there's only a few movies I've seen that like work no matter what. Like Jaws is one of those movies where like even if the audience thinks they're like, "Oh, this is a stupid movie from the '70s," second that fucking like first shark attack hits, everyone shuts the fuck up and they're in the movie, you know. And I think with this ending, it's just like it's a in theater experience you can't forget. Uh, something I don't think you touched on, but uh, did was this one much of a success when it came out? Oh, it was a it was a pretty good hit. Yeah. Okay. And funny enough, sequels came, but no one involved with the original actually had anything to do with the, the at least the two and three that came out. Actually, they shot two and three back to back, and Felissa was replaced with um, Pamela Springsteen, sister of Bruce, you know, like the boss, as it were. And they kind of like changed some of the mythology, and they kind of made a more like kind of campy summer camp horror. And the funny thing about both part two and three is like, the actor that's on the cover of those is not the person in the movie. Completely different actor. <laughs> All right. But the, but both of those covers are really great. I think it's um part. I think it's part two that has like the the Angela that's not actually in the movie with that backpack that has the hockey mask and the glove and all that on the cover. Right. It's a great cover. Yeah. I if if we're gonna talk about the sequels, I like two a lot more than three, even though they shot them back to back. Like, same camp. They just redressed the camp for part three. And I think two's a lot more fun. It's got a nice hair metal soundtrack. Or hair metal leaning towards thrash metal at times. If you haven't seen either, it's worth checking out. But we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we return, one more movie to talk about here on the Camp Void edition of the Cinematic Void Podcast. Dear Mom and Dad, I've been at a sleepaway camp... For almost three weeks. And I'm getting very scared. Welcome to Sleepaway Camp. Someone is watching you. Hey, Baba Reba. Someone is waiting for you. Someone wants to scare you to death. Turn it! Turn the wheel! Oh my God! Sleepaway camp. You won't be coming home. Welcome back. We've been talking about summer camp slashers here on the Cinematic Void podcast, Camp Void edition. And this final film we're going to discuss on this episode was the final film in the final Camp Out Part 1 triple feature I did at the Arrow for Camp Void Year 1. It is Twisted Nightmare, a movie from 1987 directed by Paul Hunt. It stars Rhonda Gray, Robert Padilla, Brad Bartram, and the late monster man Cleve Hall, who also did the special effects. The film was lensed by Gary Graver, who was a longtime protege of Orson Welles, as well as cranking out countless exploitation in adult films as a director and as a cameraman. Go look at Gary Graver's IMDb. It's insane. You got, like, those, like, lost Orson Welles movies that have now been re-released. He was the DP on, and then I think he, like, just did porn and all kinds of stuff. Gary had a very varied career, but he was also, like, he was constantly working, so... That's what Gary did. For the plot of this movie, a group of teenagers went a trip to a summer camp they had attended as children. I don't know. I how is that a fucking reward? 
wow, you get to go back to the summer camp you went as a kid. That's got to be delightful. Anyway, however soon after they get there, they begin to disappear one by one. The survivors suspect that the disappearances may be connected to the death of a handicapped child at the camp years before. Hmm, sounds familiar. Yeah. Don't know where that came from. I don't know. Well, yeah, yeah, it's... If the burning is a carbon copy of Friday the 13th, that was already a carbon copy of um, Halloween. This is at least 10 generations of carbon copies from here to get the Twisted Nightmare. The movie was also shot at the same camp used for Friday the 13th Part 3, and despite the rumors that it was shot in 1982, but wasn't released in 1987, it was actually shot in 1987, so it was a really late entry in the slasher game. What's up with that rumor? Why, why does that even the, exist? There was a typo in the copyright in the opening credits that said 1982. Oh, okay. It's not like Blood Rage, which was shot in the early 80s, but not released until, like, mid to later 80s. So, I mean, that stuff happens, but this one... Cleve Hall, who is, you know, the effects artist and played the killer in the movie, like, he basically cleared up. It's like, yeah, this movie was just shot in 87, not 82. So that put that rumor to rest. And as I said, when I screened in 2016, it was the final film on that Camp Void, final camp out triple bill. Cleve Hall came out to introduce it. And Cleve was pretty open and honest about the movie and just basically said, Twisted Nightmare was not a great film at all. <laughs> I agree with, uh, with, with Mr. Hall. You just saw it for the first time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't love it. It's the, you know, it's fine. It's, it's, uh, I, I just saw it for the first time, as far as I know. Although it looks, it it looks like one of those things that I may have rented in the '90s and and watched. And and it's, uh, I don't know. I'm sorry. It's it's forgettable. Yeah. It if Friday the Thirteenth is a five, this might be like a three and a half to four. Mm-hmm. Honestly. But you know when I when we had Cleve there. Um, also, though, I will say to its to its credit. Or like you know, I also did just watch it like on YouTube. You know, it's pretty it's pretty unavailable as far as I know. There's a there's actually a Blu-ray of it, and okay, funny enough, I'm lying. And then okay, <laughs> I not really lying. It Code Red put it out on Blu-ray, and it's like it's. I think it's. I think um, it's now you can get it on Amazon. Before you could only get it through Code Red, but like, okay. well, I'm sorry, Code Red. I watched it on YouTube, and it looks like shit on YouTube, and. Yeah, again, it's it's boring and whatever, but I'm also watching a bunch of blobs off of a VHS tape. Yeah, I mean, that's how a lot of people watch it into the Blu-ray. But honestly, the higher definition can't help a movie that's just not good. <laughs> Fair enough. But funny enough, if you actually pick up that Blu-ray, you can see my Q&A with Cleve Hall on it. And it's incorrectly labeled as Cleve Hall and a night at the New Beverly, even though this took place at the... Arrow Theater. But Cleve, Cleve was an awesome dude. He was a good sport for coming out to a movie that he wasn't big on. And he kept asking about, like, when are you guys going to show some Godzilla movies? And we didn't... The reason why we couldn't show Godzilla movies or outside of, like, the main one for years is because Toho charged a lot of money for rights. But then once Janus Criterion got it, it made it available. So that's why you see all these Godzilla films screening now. Oh, okay. So I... I which, I don't know if Cleve came out when we did the Godzilla-thon like a few years back. I hope he did, or it showed up at some point. So, 
you know, the movie's not that good, but there are some good things in it. I think the effects are pretty good. Cleve did a bang-up job with them. Some of them are just needle-drop replays of effects from other movies. You get a pitchfork murder that's essentially the same as the one in Friday the 13th Part 3, where they shot on the same camp. But then you get weird shit like the the killer summoning lightning and electrocuting people. Uh, yeah, I guess this uh, it's 87. At this point, the slashers have moved into the supernatural territory. Yeah, I think 87 might have been around when Jason fought the Carrie clone in, like, Part 7, New Blood. Mm -hmm. And plus, like, Jason was reanimating every fucking movie at this point. So, like, the the supernatural element was now becoming a staple in slashers. Because how many fucking times can you kill Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers without there being a supernatural element? Except this one just kind of, like, had it in the forefront, you know? And, you know, they obviously set up the killer, Matthew, as, like, you know, a Jason clone that they were hoping to make sequels off of. Didn't happen. I think the supernatural element, or it's also kind of a Native American element, too. It's a little bit of a nice touch and a little bit of a wrinkle, just because it's out in the open up front. But at the end of the day, it's it's still a fucking cash-in of all those other slashers coming really, really late in the game. You know... Watching with the audience, it does play well. It's not a good movie, but it's stupid. And sometimes a stupid movie playing last on a triple bill is going to play like gangbusters. And this one did. Yeah. Because, you you know, you start an evening with The Burning, which is like a beloved classic. You start with Sleepaway Camp, which is like a slow burn great, great, great slasher. And then you just put some bonkers like shit at the end, which is Twisted Nightmare. The one thing I'm going to point out is the origin story of Matthew is a bit wacky. Even for slasher killer origins, you know. Matthew was bullied, and he goes into this barn. He spontaneously combusts. I'll say, spontaneous combustion is another one of those, like, 80s tropes, like quicksand, as we've talked about before. For some reason, in the 80s, there was this hysteria. Like, I remember this as a kid. For some reason, we all just thought we were going to fucking catch on fire. Yeah, it... It was a big thing, and, and Toby Hooper made a movie called Spontaneous Combustion, which had a lot of people exploding in the flames. But uh, kind of back to this movie, it has another pretty damn good firewalk in it. It it might not be burning level, but like it has a dude running out of a fucking barn into the woods on fire. And that's got that going for it. And that leads into the other twist. So you have this Native American groundskeeper, Kane, who warns some of the kids that they should bounce from this camp because... There's some bad shit going on. And towards the end of the movie, the kids that haven't been killed yet see Kane strangling one of them. So they shoot him because they think he's the bad guy. Turns out the person he was strangling, this girl Laura, is the one who set everyone up to come here so Matthew, the killer, can get revenge on him. Which is an unexpected twist. It's almost an illogical twist. It's like, why are you harboring this stuff? It's like, it doesn't work. It's... But at least she was there in the beginning, unlike Mrs. Voorhees showing up in the last, like, 20 minutes of the movie. True. I mean, it, it's, it, it kind of works as a twist. It also kind of doesn't work as a twist. But, again, if it's playing last on a triple bill, it doesn't matter. It's just the more ridiculous, the better. The movie ends with, like, Kane, the Native American groundskeeper, like, I guess he didn't die from the shot. He, like, knocks over some barrels and they set the barn on fire with Laura and Matthew in the end. And the one final girl, I forget what her name is, because most of these characters aren't very memorable. For the most part, they're all they're all kind of like a variation of like stupid jocks. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like most of the male cast are just dumb fucking jocks. Totally. They didn't even mix it up. They didn't have this, you know. They, they're all one note, and it's the same note. It's like A, 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 just over and over again. But the twist with the ending is you see the barn burning, and then it magically stops burning and reforms as whole, setting up that this barn's got some evil shit in it. And it's going to un- be unleashed in the sequels. That didn't happen. I don't know. What are your final thoughts on Twisted Nightmare? You know what? It's it's fine. Uh, if you're big on slashers. And, you know, sometimes we, we all have our slasher phase. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you get on Blu-ray, you can actually see what the fuck is going on. Although it doesn't make up for how just fucking dumb the movie is. Restorations only make a movie look better. They don't actually make the movie better. Just something to keep in mind. I mean, like I said, as a last film in a triple bill, it's perfect. On its own, it's probably more for a slasher completist. And people are like, I haven't seen every movie where someone fucking slashes someone. What else do I have left to see? It also has like a gnarly bear trap thing in it to it. So that, 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 that's good. We're going to take one last commercial break, but when we return, it's going to be read, watch, and listen here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Schon eigenartig. Sie kommt wieder her, obwohl das mit ihrem Bruder geschah. Was passierte ihrem Bruder? Sie hat sie nicht erzählt? Es war nicht unsere Schuld. Es war ein Unfall. Lebendig gewordener Albtraum verbreitet Angst und Horror. Reise ins Grauen. Es gibt keinen Kommen. Welcome back. Better put out that campfire because it's time for. the cinematic void podcast where we talk about all the things we've been reading watching and or listening to since the last time we recorded a podcast so nick why don't you tell me what you've been reading watching and or listening to well i have been reading uh the black dahlia avenger book by steve hodell uh which i actually just recently got from you you gave me uh all three of steve hodell's books uh that are black black dahlia avenger uh one two and three and, you know, by the time he gets to the third one, he's also claiming that his dad, like, was the Zodiac Killer and Michael Myers. I mean, I, I do kind of buy that his dad was the Black Dahlia Killer. Yeah. Him and Man Ray and all. The, the Man Ray connections. The, all that shit's sick. And John Houston. Yeah. I, I, there's actually my wife, my wife's books, and she read them back in the day. She's like, I'm never going to read these again. Like... I think one's the best of the books. Two's okay. Three is like, you know, when you start trying to get him to be like the Zodiac Killer and then the Unabomber and all that shit. It's just... The Unabomber. I love it. Well, no, I think there was an alternate theory that the Zodiac Killer was also the Unabomber at one point. Mm. But really, Zodiac Killer was just... Yeah, the Unabomber was just, you know, he's just the Unabomber. Yeah. I think the Zodiac Killer was just some weirdo that like, I don't know. I don't think they ever caught him. I don't know if they ever will. 
I know, like, a lot of people think it's Arthur Lee Allen, but, like, mm-hmm. there's some there's some plot holes in that, too. So, I think it's going to fall under Jack the Ripper, where, like, you know, they can find the DNA and they can maybe figure out who it is. But is it really? Yeah. Don't really know. Uh, but then, also, I've been listening to the uh, Roots of Evil podcast, which is about uh, George Hodel and goes like way deeper into the family and all that stuff. I've, I've actually already listed the whole thing, like age, like back when it came out a few years back. Um, so I just been going through, through that, uh, lately kind of like as I'm reading the book. Um, and then also I've been listening to the, uh, finesse endless summer record, um, which came out in 2001 and it's, uh, it's a, it's an ambient record. It's a noise record, some guitar in there. Um, it's a, like a noise record with melody somehow it's an instrumental. I don't know. You know what I mean? It's super spacey, noisy, weird, fucked up. I really recommend it. It's, it's definitely has a, it's called endless summer. It definitely has like a summer vibe to it. Just if you want to just listen to something, you can chill out to some nice ambient music. I highly recommend finesse endless summer. Um, and I've really just been listening to that quite a bit lately and that's about it for listening. And then I just watched 29 Needles, uh, which I got. <laughs> uh, this is a 2019 film by Scott Philip Georgens. I don't uh, uh, Yeah, we're just going to roll with that. It's described as psychosexual body horror, and I think that's completely fair. The lead character's name is Francis Bacon. It opens with him like laying on the floor masturbating with another guy furiously masturbating above him. And then like kind of flashing to this old man like just flashing like you know as in it's not actually happening just like it's in his imagination it's like flashing this old man who's like biting a chain and it's like bleeding it's just that's just this whole movie it's just like crazy s&m just like it's a it's a fun one and there's this like dick monster that kind of comes and visits him like towards the end there are parts I, I'm not describing this particularly well. You mean Peter, I, penis monster is <laughs> not very descriptive. I think you've done well. You're just, <laughs> um, you're you're just work, you're just digging a bigger hole into the FBI list you're heading on with these purchases. I mean, mostly I just I want to talk about the part where so there's this there are these it's it's artsy there, there's like a bunch of stuff it's it's artsy it's not just like literally this crazy stuff happening. There's a lot of stuff where it's like is it a dream sequence? What's going on? Like there's it's a bunch of cool stuff going on. I, I think it's a really cool movie. There are these two, like it never really explains it. There's these two like naked guys in, in his yard that have these weird masks on. And whenever he's sitting in his dining room, completely naked playing with his balls. Um, those guys are always like out back, like kind of looking in the window and that's when he typically takes, it's called 29 needles. He takes needles and he shoves them into his balls, into his testicles. So, yeah, I, I've, co- I've covered pretty much everything. Uh, te- needles and balls, dick monster in the dining room as well. There's guys out back in masks, naked, no reason. And he's just, Francis Bacon is a very disturbed guy. And he's trying to work his, his way through some pain, some trauma that he's experienced in his life. And this is how he does it. Uh, highly recommended. 29 Needles, Unearthed Films. Get the Blu-ray. Um, I think it's one of the newer, the newest things he's put out. So, recommended. And that's all I've watched lately. I'm going to watch it again probably tonight or tomorrow. I, I don't know. I just didn't quite 
I have nothing to add to this. Yeah. (laughs) I guess I'll just talk about what I've been reading, watching, and listening to that doesn't involve people like grabbing their balls and putting needles in it. Uh, Read, I've read the brand new issue of Hellbore, which is like a kind of a cult pagan UK um, zine. I talked about it probably several episodes ago because I got um, one through four and this one just came out. It's got a little bit of a folk horror section. So it talks about um, Blood on Satan's Claw and I think the Wicker Man and a couple other things. It's really good if you're into like esoteric paganism, witchcraft, that kind of thing. Also been reading Kayla Janice's House of Psychotic Women, who we're going to have on the podcast later this year, around the fall. So just get get in the swing of things, prepping, as they would say. Watch, I watched Knife and Heart, which should be up your alley if you've been watching this stuff. Knife and Heart, Knife and Heart is like a, I guess it's described if um, Brian De Palma, Dario Argento, and William Freakin got together and basically mashed their styles into like cruising, dress to kill, and you know Argento's giallos. It's like a French giallo, like. You know, it's it's fucking it's out of control. It's amazing. It's one of the best things I've ever seen. I it's my number two favorite Neo Giallo behind I Know Who Killed Me, the one that stars Lindsay Lohan. Oh sure. And it's not by much. Like it's probably a hair. It might actually supersede this, but like I I would actually do this as a double feature for January Giallo, Knife and Heart plus I Know Who Killed Me. There the it this movie's bonkers. I know New Beverly has played it. I think they played it on 35, maybe... I don't know when, because I've lost all concept of time because it's fucking pandemic. But they played it on 35. It, uh, one of the Vinegar Syndrome's partner labels put it out. I forget the name of the label, but it's highly recommended. Check it out. You should get in, Nick, because... Just based on the shit you've been watching anyway. Cool. It definitely has a dildo with a knife murder in it. Sweet. Multiple times. And, yeah. it's It would be up your alley. I also watched Coljack the Night Stalker, the second TV movie after Night Stalker, The Night Strangler, which takes place in Seattle, which is really good TV movie. This one directed by Dan Curtis, who, you know, did Dark Shadows and Burnt Offerings and stuff like that, and Trilogy of Terror. I Because we had a solar eclipse recently, I watched the, not really solar eclipse, but more solar flare-themed Giallo Autopsy starring Mimsy Farmer and Barry Primus. Has a Hall of Fame dummy drop in it, too. Really weird, really, really great Giallo. Definitely, it's part of the Vinegar Syndrome on Forgotten Giallo Volume 3 box set. So if you want to pick that up. That's probably the most marquee title in that set. The other two are like a little lesser known, like kind of Spanish, Italian co-productions. But Autopsy's the all-timer. Also watched Jorge Grouse, the director of Living Dead Manchester's Morgue Hunting Ground. It's kind of a revenge movie. Definitely cool. Definitely check it out. And last night, I watched City of Lies, the Johnny Depp, Forrest Whitaker-starring movie about the murder of Biggie Smalls and the conspiracy went into it. It was a movie that was made in 2017, then it got shelved and finally came out on video on demand, like, this year. And it's actually really good, and I think it was produced by um, Biggie's mom. She has even a little cameo in it. And, yeah, I... Some of the direction and shot choices don't quite work, but, like, the performances are great. Toby Huss, who plays... Already the world's strongest man. And he's in it and he plays a cop. And like, my wife was watching. I was like, why don't I reckon? Oh shit, that's fucking Artie. Wow. And he's great in it. Like, 
performances are great has a really great soundtrack it, there's a lot of needle drop stuff of like you know death row record stuff and biggie songs and rage against machine for fuck of it they play killing in the name of in the middle of it i don't know it i enjoyed it more than i thought i would i'd say seven out of ten nice definitely if if you're in the mood for that like you know la lore because like the amount of times i've driven on fairfax and wilshire like right by where that happened is just insane at this point listen i listened to the new lloyd banks record the course of the inevitable shit's fucking fire has a lot of great guests has benny the butcher ransom has um freddie gibbs on a track even though he's not listed but you know freddie pops on it's 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 a really good record lloyd's raps are like shit like lyrically it's one of the best records i've heard in a while uh speaking of benny he released a single i think it was like a part of a seven inch that ha- came out with the pugs i met too it's another collaboration with him and harry fraud the song's called sync it's two minutes really nice short hip-hop song played a few times definitely worth checking out then i went a little more old school and listened to the infamous by mob deep one of the best hip-hop rap murder rap records ever made shook ones part two is like all-time great song that fucking beat is like nasty. Like seriously, if you've never, if you're gonna listen to Mob Deep, make sure you listen to Shook One's Part Two. Like all time, fucking fantastic song. And then weird reason I threw on Metallica and Justice for All. I don't know. I got an inkling to listen to it. Record still holds up. And yeah, that's where I stopped with Metallica. Uh, that wraps up this episode of the Cinematic Void Podcast. Got a couple things want to plug here before we wrap it up completely. Coming up, our next episode is going to be In Search of Bigfoot. So keep your cryptozoology eyes open for that one. Uh, coming up on the Cinematic Movie, we have two Camp Void episodes coming up. One's going to be on Friday, July 9th, and then Friday, July 23rd. Also, I don't know if this is going to be announced before this podcast comes out, but Cinematic Void will be at Crypticon Seattle, August 27th through 29th. Going to be on some panels, going to be selling some merch, and it's going to be the live debut of the Cinematic movie, which means showing the Cinematic movie, doing all the host segments live. Really excited to take a big leap here because it's different than hosting the screening, it's different than pre-recording and putting together the show. So a little scared, a little nervous, but hey, got to get out of your comfort zone sometimes. So I'm also really excited to do that. Also excited to get the fuck out of LA and fucking travel again. Fuck this goddamn pandemic. God damn it. Looking forward to leaving the house. More than like a 10 mile radius. And one last thing. Keep your eyes and ears open for the announcement of the first Cinematic Voice show at the Los Feliz 3. I don't, again, that might be already announced by the time this podcast comes out. It might not, but look for announcement or look for the show that's going to be coming sometime late July, early August. So I know what I'm screening. Can't wait to show it to you. Until next time, see you in the void. void.